Romans chapter 3. Thank you so much for sharing part of your spring break with us. Uh, it does mean so much to have you here. It really does. So we appreciate it very, very much. Very excited about where we're going to be going today. And uh, it has been a challenge to me. Very excited about this. You're going to find a lot of application to your life today. It's going to be really, really good. In Romans chapter 3, I was going to tell you a quick story. Growing up, I was growing up, I grew up in what I'll call a, a God-fearing home. It wasn't a God-centered home. I mean, there was a Bible in our house. And, you know, my mom and dad, uh, if you would have asked them, you know, are you a Christian? They would have said yes. But, you know, never, never participated in the life of the church. And there wasn't really a, a, a sense that, uh, you know, God was honored or God was worshiped around our home. In fact, quite the opposite, exactly. But my dad grew up Lutheran and my mom grew up Baptist. And so I grew up nothing because they could never decide on a church that they wanted to go be a part of. And we never, we never uh, got to be a part of anything like that. And I just want to say this, by the way, you know, if you're here today or you might be listening online, that if you have children in your home and you can't decide, you know, man, my, you know, I grew up this and my wife grew up that or vice versa, uh, find a Bible teaching church and go. Your kids need spiritual nourishment. Your children need spiritual training. And so find a church that teaches the word of God and go. My mom and dad didn't do that. And so here I am in seventh grade, about 13 years old. And I can remember in my life having this, this desire to know God. I mean, I had this desire to know more of God. And I had my friends that I hung around with all the time. And they, would always, they were always telling me tales of things that they'd done in church or going to church and things like that. And I can just remember being in seventh grade like, man, I'd really like to go to church. You know, I, I just never really been. I'd really like to go. But at the same time, I was scared to go because I didn't know what people did in those buildings, you know, things like that. I'll never forget, though, two of my best friends in seventh grade, Charlie and John, were sitting there at lunch one day. They're great guys. We're sitting there in the cafeteria, and somehow the topic of church came up. Now, John was John Riley. He grew up Catholic, Irish Catholic, okay? And uh, Charlie, Charlie Johnson, was Southern Baptist. Okay, now I didn't know at the time what those things meant. I could have cared less, but they got into this heated argument. I don't know how it came up, but all I can remember, I can distinctly remember John saying something to Charlie like this. You Baptists think that once you're saved, you're always saved no matter what. Like you can go out and murder somebody and that's okay with God because you're saved, you know? And then Charlie shot back to John and he said, well, you Catholics think you can do whatever you want you just go tell a priest and it's okay with God. Like you can go out and get drunk all weekend because Baptists are obsessed with alcohol, right? You get drunk all weekend and you just come back on Monday, tell your priest and then suddenly it's like it never happened. And I can remember them getting so upset at each other. Usually the three of us would hang out, you know, after lunch, but John wouldn't hang out. I just kind of hung out with Charlie. I didn't really know, you know, and they we couldn't we couldn't hang out together anymore. But I remember sitting here listening to this conversation, and I was, I was confused. I won't lie to you, but I was soaking it in, too. And the sad irony of it is that while these two religious zealots were going after each other about the finer points of doctrine, there was somebody sitting at the table who had a desire to know God, and they didn't even have any clue. They were some of my best friends. I hung out with them almost every day. No one of them ever turned to me one day and said, Les, do you know God? Or, Les, would you like to go to church with me sometime? You know? No, that never happened. That never happened. And so the title today is this, 
Stop going to church. All right. I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> are the elders here? Has Les lost it? <laughs> because Les is sitting here telling us not to go to church. And it's spring break. What's going on? Okay. Charlie Johnson and John Riley were very religious people. They were in church every Sunday. They cared about their church, obviously. They fought for their church. They defended their church. They built a big part of their lives around their church. They got their identity from their church. But ladies and gentlemen, I'd sit there in seventh grade. I was lost as a goose in a hailstorm. If I would have died that day, I would have gone to hell. I didn't need somebody who went to church. I needed somebody to be the church that day. That's what I needed. Church is not where we go. Church is not what we do. Church is what we are. Ephesians chapter 1, look on the screen. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. What is the church? The church is his body, Paul says. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. That word church is a transliteration of a Greek word. and It means the, the gathering of the people of God, the assemblage of the people of God. The church are, is the people in the world who have this internal, personal relationship with God. That's who the church is. That's what I need. I didn't need somebody who went to church. I need somebody to be the church. I didn't need somebody to talk about Jesus. I need somebody to be Jesus to me that day. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Did I say chapter 3? I apologize. Chapter 2 verse 17 through 29. Now, this is going to be hard to understand at first. We're going to have to peel back the cultural layers a little bit, but I promise you there's an incredible application for our lives today. <clears throat> now, if you, Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Now, what you might do to help you with this passage is put the word Christian in there instead of the word Jew. Okay, and where it says circumcision, put in something like baptism or communion. Okay, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, the Bible, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law, the Bible, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, baptism, communion has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have, have you not become as those who have not been circumcised? or unbaptized. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, the Bible, will condemn you who, even though you have not the written code and even though you have the written code and circumcision and the Bible, you are a lawbreaker, a Bible breaker. A man is not a Jew or a Christian if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew or a Christian if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, not by the spirit, not by the written code. And such a man's praise is not from men, 
but from God. I know some of you are like, what is Paul talking about? Two big words there. All right, first of all, the word law. Okay, think about law. You got to think about behavior. Think about circumcision. All right, what is that all about? It's about having a badge on your, on your body. You know, somebody can identify you as a Christian right away because of the badge you have on your body. Then there's this idea of improvement. You know, the law was the world's greatest self-improvement system. This entire system of codes and rituals and habits for every detail of life. There's food, hygiene, business dealings, family, your sex life, everything. There was a rule for everything. And we can be fooled into believing that our religious conduct has saving power. I'll just do the right things and I'll I'll just ask Jesus in my heart, so to speak. And the bottom line is this. You believe that somehow your morality is the key to your spirituality. And then there's this whole idea of enhancement. You know, I've, I've, I've improved myself. I've made myself better. And then I have this emblem. And it could be something like baptism. It could be something like communion. Uh, who knows what it might be. But we have these, these ceremonies and these symbols that we use to identify ourselves with certain groups. And we all know we can go to certain, you know, you go out to a restaurant and some certain groups will walk in. You immediately know, you know, this person is a part of that Christian denomination or that Christian group or something like that because of the emblems that they have. And it's like a mark on your body. Circumcision was, it says, hey, I'm specially favored by God. I'm especially committed to God. And we can be fooled in believing that our identity has saving power. And so things like, you know, there again, baptism and and and. Uh, church membership, and whether or not you're conservative or, or progressive, those are the kind of things that make us right with God. And we'll say the things and do the right things, and we'll kind of, you know, kind of parrot other people around us, thinking that somehow our identity creates a spirituality. And that's the mindset that the Apostle Paul addresses here. And see, we all have this propensity. We all have this drive. We, we want to believe that our, our external conduct is an indicator of an internal reality. So the first thing he addresses is this thing that the Jews have. It's the advantage. It's an advantage, the advantage of God's choosing. Look at verse 17 and 18. The Jewish people in the first century had incredible advantages because of God's blessing. Paul's not criticizing these things. On the contrary, he's saying, man, it's incredible what you have. First of all, real quickly, they had the singular word of God. He says, you rely on the law. It's breathtaking that the Jewish people had actually heard the voice of God among them. No other people on the face of the planet could say this. They took tremendous pride in having God's word. And they said, man, God has singled us out. And here in America, it just seems like we have the word of God. I have this Ryrie study Bible. And it's just amazing. We have the word of God in incredible forms and in incredible accessibility. Some of you are looking at it right now on a phone or a tablet. I mean, it's amazing to think about. And we have all these different study Bibles now. You know, it's, a, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, there's the men's study Bible. There's the women's study Bible. There's the teen study Bible, the children's study Bible. Pretty soon there's going to be the angst-ridden millennial study Bible. You know, I don't know. They're going to come up with another one, and it's going to be out there. And many Christians take pride in the version of the Bible that they use. You know, like, you know, I read the ESV. I only read the NIV for, you know, devotional, you know. Somebody, somebody like, you know, I read the King James. It's good enough for Jesus and Paul. It's good enough for me. You know, that's the only Bible I'm going to use. So the Jews, they had God's word in their possession, but 
did God's word possess them? Number two, Paul says they had a special relationship with God. He says, you brag about your relationship to God. They were in covenant with God. God has said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And in the, if you go out into the Jewish community, you know, out in public, in the public sphere, but especially in their homes, everything about the atmosphere just was just soaked in God and just trying to acknowledge God and honor God. And that can happen us to, in us today, to us today. Growing up in a committed Christian home here in America, a committed Christian nation, we can become what's called a cultural Christian. We speak the language, we can act the part, and yet still be very, very far from God. They also had what we might call the supreme moral code. Because he says, you know his will and you approve of what is superior. Everybody has a moral code. Everybody in the world has a moral code. The pillars of Islam, you know, the eightfold path of Buddhism, you know, the Ten Commandments of Judaism. Everybody has a moral code. Paul says, you have the best one. They took great pride in it because it was given to them by God himself there on the mountain when Moses carried down the Ten Commandments, those tablets. And there's nothing else like it in the world. And in fact, at that time in the world, before the coming of Christ, it was the one means of salvation. If you can follow this law to the letter, you can be saved. And again, there's a danger here of assuming that what really matters about us is the moral code that we keep. We start thinking and taking about the, the things that we don't do. And we start taking pride in that and looking down on the people that do do them. You know, I grew up Baptist. So, I mean, there was a code, right? You know, it's like, I won't drink, I won't dance, I won't dip, and I won't go out with girls who do, you know? That's kind of thing, you know? And so I told Melanie, you got to give up the skull when we get married, okay? <laughs> I told her that. Many church members will do the same thing Paul warned the Jews in Rome not to do. And it's so tempting to measure your spirituality by your moral superiority to the other people around you at the same time calling them depraved and things like that. But you know, the other thing he had was this, this superior education. Look what he says, because you are instructed by the law. That word instructed is the word catecheo, and it means to project sound into the ears, but that's where we get our word catechism. And it was incredible when you think about, you know, the catechism that, you know, there, have been a, there was a time in American history where that young people were taught so much doctrine and so much Bible information. And there were so many in the Jewish community who were so well-educated in the scriptures, and they took pride in that. They had schools, classes, books, libraries, lectures, teachers, professors, synagogues. Children began their religious education during infancy. This past week, my, my oldest daughter is thinking about going to Southern Seminary. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. By the way, it's not Louisville, it's Louisville. Okay, you got to say it right, Louisville. Louisville, Kentucky. Gorgeous campus, sitting on a hilltop out there, beautiful trees, these big, beautiful, ornate buildings everywhere. It looks something like an Ivy League college. And we're getting a tour. We talked to a professor, this and that and the other. They're so proud of their academic prowess. How many of their professors are published in the podcasts that they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to admit, it's very impressive. Their library has a million volumes. They have so many, they can't fit them all in the library. They'd store them in a cave not far from the campus, a cavern. It's an impressive place. Something like 5,000 students preparing for life in the ministry. So inspiring. But here's the challenge. 
The challenge for many of us is that we would never measure our spirituality by how much we know about the Bible, how much we know about doctrine, as if the best measure of spirituality is someone's ability to dazzle us with Bible knowledge. Someone can have a great passion for studying doctrine and take great pride in their knowledge and their religious pride actually lead them away from God. So now all these advantages that Paul mentions are all good things. There's nothing wrong with any of them. But the Jews and many Christians today can become dependent upon these things for righteousness. We believe we have a special standing with God because of those things when we don't. So you're just going to church. We don't want to be just going to church. So yeah, stop going to church. The second thing is this. They had the privilege of God's blessing. Look at verse 19 and 20. You're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, a, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. See, the Jews had this way of believing that they were somehow more than the culture around them. They had this air of superiority about them. And religious legalism has a particularly powerful way of warping and twisting the human soul. You know, Matthew chapter 12, it's going to come up on the screen for you. This has always really blown me away. It says, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man was there with a shriveled hand. You know, I can't imagine as a man in the ancient world trying to provide for your family what it would be like to have a shriveled hand. You know, you're, you're one-handed because he was injured so badly. And the Jews there were looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. You know, you're breaking our religious law. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In other words, here it is on our, on our holy day when we're not supposed to do any work. And in our point of view, that healing is working. And so if you're going to work on the Sabbath, we think you're breaking our law, our religious code, if you're working on the Sabbath by healing somebody. It must be work. It must be really, really hard because nobody else can do it. And he said to me, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. It was completely restored. What would that have looked like to see something like that? Wow. And just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. They sat there, they saw that, and they heard that. And they said, you know what? We got to kill this guy. We need to be aware that Religious pride does terrible heart damage. It really does. It can do terrible things to you. Paul says you can, become to, you can come to believe that you're a guide to the blind, that you and you alone can see things clearly. You may begin to believe you're a light in the dark, that everybody else is walking in darkness, but you, you're the one that's walking in the light. You might start believing that you're an instructor of the foolish, that you know I'm wiser than all others around me. And you might even begin to see yourself as a teacher of little children. Everyone else is so immature, and yet me, I'm so much more. When others don't do what you truly believe is the right thing to do in a certain situation, you do what the Pharisees did. You attack the person that disagrees with you, even if it's Jesus. Number three, Paul addresses the wreckage of counterfeit spirituality. Look at verse 21 through 24. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I was reading this passage from my quiet time the other day. 
I got to tell you, that phrase right there hit me like a brick. Do you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, the way I felt the Lord spoke this into my own heart was, do you point out your own faults as readily as you point out the faults of other people? Look at Paul's judgment against the Jews here. You do the very things that you condemn. You might not steal food from the market. You might not go out, actually go up to a merchant like grab pears and run, but you kind of cook the books when you're you know, doing things and you're kind of stealing by the way you do your taxes and the way you do your business. You might not have a mistress and be out committing adultery, so to speak, but you don't mind indulging with a little bit of fun with the boys down at the temple, something like that. When the boys go out to the clubs, you don't mind enjoying, you don't, you don't mind indulging a little bit of fun. You might not steal an idol from a temple necessarily, but maybe you cheat the temple in your business dealings, stealing from that way. And Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that is a tough charge right there because to the Jews, the worst sin of all was blasphemy. That's why they crucified Jesus, was for blasphemy. And so Paul is saying, the Gentiles, are, uh, God is, God's name is blasphemed because of you among the Gentiles. You know, it's amazing how many churches will keep records on how many people they win to Christ. I wonder what would happen if churches began to keep records of how many people they drove away from Christ. Wow. Think about that. Second Timothy chapter three, Paul said this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. And we're like, that's right. There will be. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You want, is that all? <laughs> wow. It's quite a list. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know, if you read this passage carefully, looking at its context, Paul is not talking about the culture at large. He's talking about within the church. He's talking about inside the church, specifically Christian leaders, specifically preachers, preachers, people who claim to be teachers of the word of God. He said they have a form of godliness. There's an element of religious conduct. There's a religious jargon. They have it all down. You know, the, the form, the image. They say the right things and do the right things. However, they deny its power. Now, some people might say, yeah, that's right. They deny the power to do the miraculous. They deny the power of the Holy Spirit. They're just religious people. No, what he's talking about here is the power to tame your flesh, your appetites, they don't have that power. And so Paul says they steal, they betray, they abuse. Why? Because their appetites still have power over them. And he goes on to say in the rest of the passage that they worm their way into the houses of the weak-willed. And that's when they steal from them and they abuse them. You know, there's so much spiritual wreckage in the world. Why? Because people look and sound the part on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. And here's what was happening. Is that the Jews of that day began to look at this 
ceremony of circumcision as evidence or proof that they were among God's chosen. You know, it doesn't really matter what's going on in my heart. What matters is the sign on my body or what I've done or the ceremony. And so it was the outward ceremony and not the inward reality that the Jews began to depend on as evidence for their relationship with God. And we today, we could substitute our ceremonies like baptism, like confirmation, church membership, communion. We can begin to depend on ceremony to save as if ceremony has saving power. Oh, I would never do that, <laughs> you know. A friend of mine is a pastor in Oklahoma, and he had a young man who came to his church. He wanted to join his church. And uh, he was an exchange student from Jordan. And a missionary in Jordan, he grew up Muslim, a missionary in Jordan led him to Christ. And he had come to America to go to college. He had been baptized in the Jordan River. Isn't that great? Baptized in the Jordan River. And he wanted to go join a Baptist church. But the pastor of the Baptist church said that he would need to get baptized again because he had not been baptized in a Baptist church. He'd been baptized by immersion where Jesus was baptized. (laughs) All right. That wasn't good enough. He had to be baptized in a Baptist church under Baptist guidelines where he could join the Baptist church. Incredible. Guys, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized, sanitized, galvanized, or pasteurized. Okay. It doesn't really matter. The question is, have you put your faith in Jesus alone? for your salvation? Have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? And has there been a mighty work in your deep heart where you can know that you just know that you know? My heart is different. My heart has changed. Remember that moment when George W. Bush was in that debate years and years ago, running for president in 2000, and something was asked by the moderator about Jesus. And George W. Bush said, Jesus changed my heart. Jesus changed my heart. I, you know, I don't know how you feel about Mr. Bush. Not that it really matters. But there he is on national TV with 200 million people watching. And he says, Jesus changed my heart. He didn't say, I'm a Christian. I go to church a lot, things like that. No, Jesus changed my heart. That's what it means to be a Christian. So that brings up number four. And that's this message of true Christianity. Paul is going to stick the landing right here, okay? He's going to sprint to the finish line. This is an awesome, awesome verse of Scripture. The summary of what it means to truly be spiritually reborn, to be born again, to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you see this message consistently through all of Paul's letters, through all of Peter's letters, through all of John's letters, and through all the preaching of Jesus. Look at verse 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one inward, outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. You say, Les, that's really a weird word salad right there. Okay. A circumcision of the heart, you know, inwardly a Jew. You know, what are we talking about here? These things could not be more relevant to our lives today. 
They are spiritual principles that have been in place all of human history. But because we are so religion-minded, we wander away from these things because in our pride, we so much want to take our responsibility for our salvation onto our own shoulders. Look at me. Look what I've done. God, you have to accept me because I've made myself so good. Number one, the internal, Paul says, is infinitely more important than the external. So you got to stop going to church. You really do. You got to just stop going to church. As Paul says, a Jew here, by that he means a true child of God in the spiritual sense of Abraham. Abraham knew God. Abraham walked with God. Abraham spoke with God. He worshiped God. He followed God. And he did all those things before he was ever circumcised, before there was ever a law, before there were ever a Ten Commandments, before there was a moral code. He did all of those things out of a love relationship with God that rested upon one thing, his faith, his faith. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what Jesus always did. He always went straight to the heart. Sometimes we don't do that enough. Now, let's think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They would have been incredible to behold, honestly. Beautiful clothes, materially successful, very prosperous. They were wealthy. They practiced incredible personal hygiene. They would have smelled great, you know. Ethically, they were near perfect. There was really no one else quite like a Jewish Pharisee anywhere in the world. But none of that attention to the exterior ever impressed Jesus. His total focus was on the heart. And that's where your focus and mine has to be as well. Away from the exterior, onto the interior. We have to be honest about our own heart. Number two, external spirituality means nothing without the internal reality. reality. As he says, circumcision is not really outward and physical. God wants the outward demonstration of spirituality to be the reflection of the inward reality. Paul didn't come up with this. The, the Old Testament prophets said the same thing for centuries. You know, the, in Isaiah chapter 58, the people complained, Lord, we fasted, but you didn't see it. He said, no, wait, when you fast, you, you argue and you fight and you do as you please. Why should I honor that kind of fasting? It's not coming from the heart. And we're all prone to keeping count of things, all right? Religion loves to count things. Because numbers matter a lot in religion. And please understand, these are all good things, but they were never meant to be our guide. If we begin to use these things as a barometer for our spiritual lives, we've gone off course. And so, yeah, we don't want to be obsessed with the numbers. We're always going to be looking at our heart because what we do on the outside, the things that we count, should always be emerging from a true heart that is beating for Jesus on the inside. So instead of going to church, be the church. The third one is this. Paul says relationships more important than achievement. He says circumcision is circumcision of the heart 
by the Spirit, not the written code. We got to be really careful about drawing conclusions of ourselves based purely on our outward actions. And it's so dangerous because many people are able on their own, in their own power, in their own strength, to live lives that are very morally admirable. Paul himself did it. He said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I was so enthusiastic as a Pharisee himself with regard to obedience to the law of Moses that I was faultless. Those things were valuable assets to me. He said there wasn't anything wrong with it. But now I think they are worth nothing because of Christ. I think that all things are worth nothing compared with the supreme value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And because of him, I have lost all those things. And now to me, they're just worthless trash. What Paul is saying here is that my internal relationship with Christ is the supremely valuable thing in my life. And it means so much more to me than the external things that I had done before that it's almost like those things are trash. He said, he's not saying that they're worth nothing. There is value to them because they do mean something. But he said, but in comparison to this relationship that I have with Jesus, they're almost like trash. And notice what Paul does here. It's what Jesus did in his preaching is he puts the focus completely on the heart. And the entire purpose of Jesus was a renovation of the heart of man, a heart surgery on you and me, which is what circumcision was in ancient times and still is today. It's a surgery. And that's why Paul would say something like this in Colossians chapter 2. In Christ, you were circumcised, but not with a circumcision done by hands. It was a circumcision done by Christ. It was a circumcision done in the Spirit in the spiritual realm of who you are, which cut away the power of your sinful nature, the flesh. We offer ourselves to the Lord. The Lord cuts away a part of our heart. We are changed. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that part of us that is fixated on things like survival and sensations and luxury and pleasure, that gets cut away by Christ. And the last one is this, right? God's approval. God's approval is not going to win for you or for me man's admiration. Notice what he says, such a man's praise. In other words, when you're a man like this, where the internal means so much more than the external, all right, The belief is so much more than the behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's be honest. There is within each one of us this burning desire for the admiration of other people. Absolutely. You can call it being popular, which we called it back in my day. You can call it being an influencer, which we call it now. Okay. You can call it being famous. Oscars are coming up. Everybody can't wait to see who's going to be on the carpet and what they're going to be wearing and what they're going to say. We all want that badly, badly. The admiration, the praise, the adoration of other people. 
And can I just be honest with you today? In the world that we live in, things like religious discipline, religious fervor, sincerity, commitment, dedication, all good things. They're all good things. Don't get me wrong. These things are, but these things are admired by the world that we live in. The world admires good people who go to church. The world admires that because it's hard. Let's be honest. Getting up every Sunday, especially time change and spring break. I mean, you're here. Wow. I mean, that, way to go. <laughs> okay. A whole lot of people didn't make it. And you have to listen to this. I'm sorry. It's like, why am I being scolded? You know, right. I, I get that. People love it when good people who go to church a lot, when they feed the poor, they do disaster relief, et cetera. Oh, man, just good people. They're good people. I love those Christians down there at Faith Covenant Church. They're just good people. You know what the world hates? Is when those good people become God people and they start telling the truth. That's when they don't like it. The world hates anyone who points out to them where they are wrong. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you go do disaster relief in New Orleans, but don't get up there and talk to me about my lifestyle. Don't talk to me about that. And you know, if you want to go out there and you want to, you want to, you know, you want to feed the people, you know, uh, and, you know, go help an orphanage in a, you know, South American country, that's wonderful. But don't talk to me about the way I handle my Friday nights and my Saturday. No, don't talk to me about that. The world hates that when they're told they're outside the will of God. And so if you're going to be admired by people, just go to church. Really. Cherry pick a few religious rules to follow. Highlight those in your Bible. You know, and say, yeah, this is what I really care about. This is what I believe about God. And I'm going to live by that. And what you do is you end up worshiping the God that you want, not the God who is. I want to say that one more time. You just worship the God you have highlighted in your Bible and follow those particular rules and regulations that you've cherry-picked. You're worshiping the God that you want, not the God who is. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said this, Am I now, because I'm telling you Galatians the gospel, the full gospel, am I trying to gain the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Wow. That's not a very politically correct term, slave, right? What does it mean to be a slave of Christ? There is a God we want. There is a God who is. and They are not the same. And we become the church when we stop just going to church and we forsake worshiping and serving the God we want and we worship and serve and praise the God who is. The God who is. And we say, I am not the master. You are. All right? I am not the master. God, you are the master. Let's just bow our heads together for a moment today. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I just want to ask you to pause for a moment. And I just want to ask you to think about your own heart today. And I know it's a hard thing to do. It's a big thing to ask. 
but to think about your own heart. And just particularly that last thing, that last element there, because it really hit me really hard too. You know, how much of what you do, Les, are you doing for the admiration of other people and not just for the approval of God? You know, I want other people to think well of me. I want other people to like me. I want other people to be influenced by me. I can go on and on and on. But how much of it is really done for the approval of God and not for the admiration of men? And so we're going to be quiet for a moment or two. And I just want to ask you to go before the Lord today. And I just want to ask you before the Lord, just speak to him about your own heart. And I ask you just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there, is there a degree to which I've lived my life for the admiration of other people? Lord, is there a degree to which I've just ignored the reality of my own heart? And Lord, I just want to be, I want to be yours. I want to be yours. I want to come to a place in my life where as a man or a woman, that the only thing that matters to me is your approval. Your approval, Lord. May it be the beat of my own heart. So let's be quiet for a moment today. Let's just pray about these things. Make our heart right with the Lord today. And Lord Jesus, I thank you today that there is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, in the Spirit. And I just pray, Jesus, that the parts of me that remain, that are religious, that that yearn for the admiration of men and women around me, Father, the parts of me that look to conduct and behavior as God, I just pray, Lord, that those parts of my heart would just continue to be cut away and, Lord, thrown away, cast aside. And, Lord, I just pray that for all of us here today, Lord, that you would be doing a great work in our heart, Lord, perform a a surgery in all of our hearts here today, that we might love you and serve you, that you might be the master and we might be the slave. And, Father, I pray that for all of us here today, Lord, if there is a part of us that has been worshiping a God that we want, Lord, that you would show yourself to us as you are, Father, so it might worship you, the God who is. So we just ask, Lord, that you would be greater than our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.